You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with, uh, with Don Moore, who teaches at Berkeley. And he's the author of this uh, fantastic new book called Perfectly Confident, which, of course, I wouldn't have Don on the show if I didn't heartily recommend the book, right? This podcast is really my opportunity to kind of go through my bookshelf and and bring the books to life. So I'm really, really glad to have you on, on the show. Don, welcome. Thanks, Greg. Great to be with you. Yeah. Now, when I knew you were writing this book, I got really excited. I didn't know exactly what to expect. And because I think you're known as the kind of guru of overconfidence. I thought the book would really be about the dangers of overconfidence, but I was very pleasantly surprised when I read the galleys to see that it's about calibration and you kind of reveal yourself to be, you know, an Aristotelian really as someone who is a believer in the, in, in the golden mean. And so I was you know pleased to discover that that's kind of how you, you organized the book. Was, was that always your intention? Yeah. If you read the research literature, it's distressingly easy to come away with the mistaken impression that people are overconfident about most things most of the time, and that therefore wise decision-making requires us to become less confident. But a sort of unidirectional advice like that runs the risk of making a mistake for which I, I take Angela Duckworth to task in my book, and that is unidirectional advice that she gives mm-hmm that people should be more confident and more persistent, show greater grit in the pursuit of their goals and ambitions. And any such unidirectional advice runs the risk of sending people to an extreme that has to be an error, right? So showing more grit all the time runs the risk that you escalate your commitment to a losing course of action. You persist too long. And it's easy to think of examples like this. The inventor, the passionate inventors who's so sure that their invention holds tremendous commercial potential that they make mistakes in persisting too long trying to develop the idea exactly how they conceptualized it and failing to modify or adjust to the realities of the world. Or the young athlete who devotes themselves doggedly to practicing their sport at the expense of their other studies, which are much more likely to actually result in a job than their athletic pursuits are likely to result in a career in the professional leagues. So persisting more isn't always good advice and persisting less or being less confident isn't always good advice. A lot of my academic research tries to identify those circumstances in which people are overconfident, and there are some, and the circumstances in which people are underconfident. The conclusion that people are overconfident about everything all the time, that's not true either. So identifying when you're likely to be overconfident and moderating those erroneous beliefs, or when you're likely to be underconfident and figuring out how to buck up and be a little grittier and persisting longer in those circumstances, helps get you to the sweet spot, the Aristotelian golden mean when you're perfectly confident. Well, it makes you sound like an economist because every <laughs> economics lecture is is all about well, you know, on the one hand, on the other hand, right? You know, it's it's all about trade offs and the, the Goldilocks uh, sweet spot. But but I think there are forces that mitigate against that kind of thinking in a couple ways. I mean, on the one hand, in order to be a successful academic or even a successful author, you have to really push something hard. 
So most academic seminars, the easy question, if, even if you're not paying attention, is just to like raise your hand and say, well, what are the boundary conditions? <laughs> it's like, there's always going to, that always sets off a conversation because most advocates try to neglect that part of the conversation. And, and I'd also argue that, you know, when you're speaking to a general public and where nuance is a difficult thing, you probably have to think about, well, what do most people think? So if I'm giving advice on the coronavirus, it's very hard to say, well, you know, exercise the correct amount of caution, right? If I think that most people are reckless, then I'm going to kind of exaggerate the dangers to kind of bring them back to where I want them to be. And if I think that everybody is paranoid, then I'm going to exaggerate the safety. It's a great question that highlights the distinction between individual decision-making, wherein it's pretty clear that if you're trying to get people to make better decisions, you want them to believe the truth. You as an individual decision maker should want to believe the truth. You should want access to excellent information and good advice that helps you calibrate your judgment and make decisions that maximize expected value. But there is a profound challenge for leaders in how to calibrate their messages if they want to maximize appeal to an audience, if they want to maximize their credibility and the support they get from their, that audience, and if they're trying to do so in knowledge of the fact that their audience is diverse. So you mentioned the example of communication around the coronavirus and protective measures that we might take. Undeniably, there are people who are not taking it seriously enough. And in meeting with too many others in failing to wash their hands or wear masks as often as they should be, they're putting all the rest of us at risk. But if you're communicating with a diverse audience that includes paranoid germaphobes who have not left their home since March and who've put on 30 pounds, like telling them to be more careful probably doesn't help them make better decisions. So I think there's some interesting challenges there for the exercise of leadership. Yeah. And I think your, you know, your book is really a call for calibration. And I think your, your belief is that there is for any given task and for any given level of, of aptitude that you bring to the task, there, there is a, an optimal amount of, of confidence that you could have. I didn't realize that you'd done some work with Tony Robbins and you'd done the firewalk and all that, that sort of thing. Maybe before we, we jump into kind of the dangers of overconfidence, you, you could talk a little bit about underconfidence because kind of the American mentality is, is really all about the little engine that could, and you can do it. And, you know, William James was kind of the, the philosopher of fake it till you make it, right? And that's sort of what America is all about. Could you maybe talk about the dangers of underconfidence before we jump in and talk about overconfidence? Sure. I mean, I remember that actually that we have at, at the business school, one of the first talks that the students get is from the dean. And I remember it was about imposter syndrome, right? And part of what we do in the business school, we have a slogan, confidence without attitude is it's like we have these dials where we have to you know, we dial up the confidence, but then we smack it down and we dial it up and smack it. So talk about the dialing up part and why that might be valuable. You're right that the can-do spirit really captures a feature of the American ethos that William James articulated quite beautifully. So there's this passage in which he writes about the psychology of belief and imagines a circumstance in which he is faced with a physical challenge. He imagines he's on an alpine adventure and he finds himself stuck at a point from which he must make a bold, dangerous leap across a chasm. 
to move forward and to, to get down from the mountain where he's climbed. And he imagines two circumstances, one in which he embodies the courage to make it across. He believes in himself and that allows him to jump farther. And that is juxtaposed with a circumstance in which he is impaired, sabotaged by self-doubt. He's not sure whether he can make it, but he goes for it anyway. And his caution leads him to fall short and fall into the crevasse. He concludes in a, in a circumstance like this, I would be a fool not to believe in myself because the belief is the precondition for the successful achievement of that which I desire. In my book, I try to break down James's story a little bit, conceding the possibility that belief could enhance his ability to make it across. If we imagine that by believing in himself, it gives him the courage to jump an extra foot. And so if he could have made, if the doubting James could have made it five feet and the chasm is really six feet, he should believe in himself and go for it. But it does not follow from that, that always believing in yourself is better. If the chasm were 20 feet across, then believing in himself and going for it, however admirable it would display a faith in his own ability, if that meant jumping to his death, that doesn't seem like a wise strategy. So I think there's a lot to be said for good calibration. And you mentioned the orientation we give to our incoming MBA students. There's a real risk of the imposter syndrome. Anytime you find yourself undertaking some new challenge that really taxes your abilities, starting a new job or starting in a demanding graduate program. I think there's the real risk that people suffer the imposter syndrome. They think, maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I'm not cut out for this. And so some encouragement is a value. But you also know how much our faculty colleagues worry about students who think that they're masters of the universe and that the school owes them perfect grades and that we don't uh, moderating these students confidence in themselves and making them a little bit less entitled might be better for the culture of the school and for their educational experience so there were a couple of years when at the encouragement of our faculty colleagues i got up in new student orientation and noted not all of you are going to make it to the c-suite on average, you are average relative to your classmates, and you shouldn't all expect grades of A+. Oh, wait, now, if, there's, if there were two lines, one for the, uh, the comforting illusions and one for the honest truth, I think you, Don, probably wouldn't have too many people waiting in your line, would they? Would you? Uh-huh. And the student feedback to the orientation organizers was that I was too much of a downer. I have been withdrawn from uh, week zero and do not make that presentation anymore. I think... A lot of people would argue that fortune rewards the brave and, and that there is some situations or evidence where, you know, a belief in success can increase the probability of success. As an historian, I'm generally very skeptical whenever people say kids today, this or whatever. And, you know, they look at short term trends. And one of the reasons why I'm skeptical is because you can usually find evidence on both sides. And so a lot of people will say today's young people are depressed at a higher rate and are confronted with suicidal thoughts and, and so forth at a higher rate. Of course, you got people on the other side that, you know, the youth of today or have egos that are too big. And so what is the evidence that uh, belief in success can 
increase the probability of success. For whom might that message be valuable? Because there certainly are people that you described your father as someone who was, you know, very risk averse and afraid to even put money into the stock market and so forth. Could maybe he have used a little bit more of a of a William James like message? The idea that confidence enhances your probability of success is nowhere so much a part of an industry's culture as an entrepreneurship. So you hear from VCs to successful entrepreneurs to lots of others that if you want your entrepreneurial venture to be a success, you've got to believe in yourself. They have plenty of good examples to point to from successful entrepreneurs who displayed a delusional overconfidence in the prospects of their ventures. It is empirically the case. If you look at those who are persisting in starting their own firms and dedicating themselves to their success, that they are on average overconfident. So if you look at surveys of entrepreneurs, you will see that a substantial proportion of them think that success is highly likely or guaranteed, when in fact the statistics say that 80% of them are likely to be out of business within a few years. So is this, this selection effect? Michael Rayner, he made that point about businesses, right? Which is that if you interview the people coming out of the casino with big smiles on their face, it's because they took the big risks. And if you look at all the people slinking out the back door, they're the ones that also took the big risks. So Right. Yeah. Okay. So that's a really important point. If you want, if you are a potential entrepreneur and your question is, what is the best strategy for me to pursue? What should I believe? Just because the most successful, the right tail of the distribution of success is characterized by very high confidence, even excessive confidence, that doesn't mean that that's a positive expected value bet for you. You want to talk to all the people exiting the casino and understand how confident they were or whether they had accurate beliefs. Just because there are a few people who hit it big doesn't mean that fooling yourself into thinking that your venture will be successful and therefore maxing out your credit cards and convincing all your relatives to give you all their money and for them to take out second and third mortgages to fund your venture because you're so sure it's going to be successful, that that is a good strategy. Underlying your question is the issue of the degree to which confidence actually enhances success. And there are, of course, some circumstances in which it does. That if you have what it takes to win the race and being confident enough to enter allows you to put your skills to use, then yes, you should be confident. You should believe in yourself. You should enter the race. On the other hand, the students in my class who are most sure they're going to ace the exam and who therefore don't study are not those who get the best grades. That believing in yourself doesn't necessarily enhance effort and performance, that there are circumstances in which performance depends on you investing the time and practice. And if being so sure that you've got it in the bag impairs your motivation to practice then it can actually undermine your chance of success. So I wonder if we're actually, you know, holding up the right role models for aspiring business people or, or whatever. I mean, if you have only successful people, and this is what we do. I mean, we have, you know, successful people are the ones that, that speak on campus. They're the ones that, you know, have the YouTube channels. They're the ones that actually get on my podcast. And if you ask people like, why are you successful? They're like, well, because I worked hard and I persisted and, and I kept doing this, but we don't actually have people show up 
and speak in front of class who said, yeah, I worked my butt off and you know, I'm bankrupt, right? Like we don't have, they don't, we don't invite them, right? Maybe we should, and if we invited- Good luck getting people to listen to those shows. Well, and the thing (laughs) is, and if we invited them proportional, like, so Free Solo, which is an amazing movie. I was just like, gosh, I mean, when you see that, or I forget the movie about, you know, the Petit, the guy who went across the World Trade Center. The you Man know, the, on a the, Wire, that one. The Man on a Wire. You know, those are the kinds of things that really make you quiver with admiration for humanity and so forth. And you see that. But in the Free Solo movie, there was an episode where on the very first time he did it, he turned away and said, no, I'm not going to do this. Now, if the movie ended right there, right? Like this guy made the right decision because we don't actually know whether he would have died if he had gone that day. Suppose that, you know, he would have died had he gone on that day and he decided not to go. Like no one's going to watch that movie, right? Uh huh. But (laughs) you you need to have like probably a hundred of those movies for every movie where, you know, where he actually succeeds. Yeah. The stories we pay attention to, the stories we find captivating and exciting and fun and the movies we want to watch are not those about the 99 people who looked at El Cap and said, uh-uh, that's crazy. <laughs> I'm not doing that. The one guy who does it, like that's a great story that people want to watch. You mentioned Tony Robbins. In, in the book, I tell the story of the Tony Robbins workshop I went to, the Unleash the Power Within weekend, where he culminates the first day with this firewalk. Robbins is someone who's particularly gifted at inspiring people to imagine their best selves, calling from them more energy and enthusiasm and commitment than they had previously thought possible. And he was great at firing up the crowd into a frenzy of passionate confidence and then sending us out to the firewalk. And in the book, I tell about how I got carried away and march boldly across the burning embers, failing to take the protective measures that in Robin's defense, he had tried to drill into us how at the end, you got to make sure to get those embers off of your feet and get them sprayed down with water. And as I've suffered the painful consequences as a result with some blisters on my feet that made the next few days quite painful. Well, I think you you referred to overconfidence as kind of a gateway bias. I've always thought of confirmation bias as like the, the gateway bias, you know, the, the bias that makes all the other biases possible. But in your book, you also kind of show how they're very closely related and how the confirmation bias, which is essentially what's reinforcing this overconfidence bias. Could you talk a little bit about how do those things kind of work together? Yeah. So I talk about overconfidence as the mother of all biases, because to the extent it makes us too certain that we're right, too confident in the accuracy of our imperfect intuitive judgment, it impairs our interest in correction or in considering the possibility that we might be wrong. If we think about it in a Bayesian framework, one way that a lot of economists have modeled overconfidence is too tight a prior. That is, we're too sure that our noisy private signal is accurate and underestimate the error and noise that's built into it as a product of our idiosyncratic history or excessive faith in our intuitive judgment. You can think of confirmation bias as underweighting the informational value and evidence that we encounter. Like 
we're too willing to confirm our priors and therefore neglect informative, disconfirming evidence that might suggest we should doubt ourselves. And in either case, the result is that you update too little to evidence that suggests you might be wrong or that your beliefs merit revision. Yeah. You know, when I, I teach in behavioral finance, I've been doing this for a long time and a lot of what you're discussing comes up in that class. But in that class, we, we talk about kind of individual decision-making, but then we also talk about collective decision-making and, you know, JDM is really in many ways about individual decision-making and then org design is, is really about kind of collective decision-making. And so when I teach pricing and I talk about, oh, there's all these, you know, biases that go into pricing this. Yeah. But when it comes to B2B pricing, you don't have to worry about all that stuff. And I'm like, well, actually that's not true because organizations behave. An individual is a collection of cells and a collection of modules and impulses, and they're all competing against each other. And, and you are essentially an integration function across all these different objectives. And, and an organization is acting as an agent that's integrating all of these kind of objective functions as well. And so I always think that there ought to be a field called organizational behavioral economics to really study the irrationality of organizations. And I think when you you talked about, you know, the financial crisis, which is, I think, a great example of organizations that were really overconfident. And it's not simply a matter of take a bunch of overconfident people and staple them together. You could have non-overconfident people staple them together and get an overconfident organization. You could get a bunch of overconfident people staple them together and get a well-regulated, calibrated organization if they have the right processes. So how can individuals calibrate themselves? And then how can organizations calibrate themselves? And, and do, do you need a, a different set of tools to, to do those things? Great question. Oh, man. So, yeah, when individuals are overconfident, they will attend too little to the advice or input from others. So there's a lot of research in JDM on advice taking, which basically shows people tend to underweight advice from others. One of the ways that this plays out in markets and organizations is that people are too willing to act on their own beliefs and private information, too sure that they're right. So that can contribute to a willingness to trade in markets against sophisticated others who have lots of information. Like you proceed as if those other people are clueless morons who are just wrong about their valuation of the equity that you're trading. And so you can confidently proceed on your own subjective impression and trade against them. That's obviously hazardous. In organizations, it occurs too often that people sort of neglect the, the perceptions or opinions of others. We neglect advice from people who disagree with us taking disagreement as a challenge to our egos or an opportunity to try to argue against, persuade, or politically defeat those who have different perspectives. In fact, that disagreement is often an opportunity of tremendous value. You want to understand others. So what facts do you know that I don't that lead you to believe something so different from me? And successful organizations from Bridgewater Associates to Amazon to Netflix find ways to build into their culture an ethos of respectful disagreement that allows people to hear each other, understand others' perspectives, learn things that they hadn't already known, and use that information to update their beliefs and make wiser decisions. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that needs to be an integral part of, of the educational process from very early age. B2B 
because you, you might not be so lucky as to find yourself in, in a culture like that. And you need to hone that skill, even if you're a sole, solo practitioner. But before we get to that, you, you were mentioning this idea of, as a, say, an investor, you've got your private signal and then you've got the, the kind of public signal or the signal of others. And you tend to overweight your, your private signal. But you know the flip side of that or the boundary condition of that is when we study things like bubbles, there it's it's really more the opposite right so there it's more about contagion and about how you might look at tesla and say well can it really be worth 800 dollars a share well everybody else seems to think so so i'm just gonna like abandon my dcf analysis and i'm gonna abandon <laughs> my everything that, that seems obvious to me because i must be the idiot in the room there's situations where the, the private signals actually get wiped out and, and i wrote an article like 20 years ago about how Overconfidence may actually be a necessary uh, prerequisite for price discovery because you need people to inject their opinion into that wisdom of the crowd in spite of the fact that their opinion differs from what they perceive the crowd to be thinking. So how do we get that that weighting scheme right? Not only from an individual perspective, but I think there's also kind of the, the, the social welfare. Another example of this is in lawsuits. Most plaintiffs are irrational in the sense that their likelihood of winning, if you look at all the great Supreme Court cases that overturned precedent, they really came about because somebody was profoundly overconfident in their likelihood of winning. And this is what kind of holds people accountable because it's a private cost to use. You're either extremely, I don't know, other oriented and altruistic, or you just are overconfident. And the overconfidence can play the same role as altruism in that case. So in those cases, as in the cases of entrepreneurs who are ultimately successful, I think it's possible to regard what those people do as serving a public good, that as a nation, our economy benefits tremendously, and perhaps no state more than our home state of California, from the passion and commitment of entrepreneurs who have developed so many great ideas, contributed so much to technological advancement and to economic growth. I am profoundly grateful to those people for what they've achieved. It has contributed enormously to economic growth and to quality of life. I'm also grateful to those who go around my neighborhood picking up trash or who contribute more than they need to in taxes. That is a sacrifice that people make on behalf of the public that isn't necessarily a strategy for maximizing individual Mm -hmm. welfare. And so to note the benefits, the public benefits of some circumstances in which overconfidence can lead to persistence in excess of what expected value calculations might justify doesn't then imply everyone should be overconfident. We can be grateful to those who make sacrifices at their own expense without wanting to follow suit. When it comes to this kind of org design or market design, it's about how do you harness that energy? If we think that most people or a lot of people are overconfident, as an organization, does it make sense to try to defuse their overconfidence or would it be an easier strategy to kind of design a, a system where those you know things can offset one another? And, and I like to think like if you have an overly optimistic CEO and an overly pessimistic CFO and then you staple them together, the, the boat might actually 
go straight. You know what I mean? Like, and, and that maybe is that easier or harder than, than trying to sit them both down and, and say, Hey, let's, let's do a calibration exercise here with both of you and turn you into rational people. <laughs> I think I'd be more willing to bet on the latter than the former. That is combining two biases and hoping that they balance each other out seems more problematic and more fraught with risk than trying to figure out a way to maximize expected value, to empower an individual to think about the reasons for and against, to think about costs and the benefits, to think about the risks and the opportunities, and to have in one mind the information come together and balance itself in a way that might allow for decisions that and maximize expected value rather than putting warring factions against each other and hope that somehow the truth emerges from the conflict. It seems like a bad bet to me. But that also seems like the approach that, you know, Adam Smith and Alexander Hamilton and, and all the rest have taken, which is, you know, human nature is kind of a difficult thing to change. But of course, you know, that would mean our jobs are kind of superfluous as, as, you know, as teach, <laughs> teachers. Right. It's kind of a grim view of, of the malleability of humans. But you've given yeah. some examples so, of how... Can I, can I respond to that? I yeah. have a thought. So you noted the inherent tensions in trying to apply a prescriptive economic lens to fraught human endeavor. That it requires acknowledging the, the truth that we're imperfect, that our intuitions do not match the perfect economic rationality, that we will make mistakes, that we have finite cognitive processing capacity, that we will be swayed by compelling speakers and confident contenders for leadership that will, for all our good intentions, fail to measure up to the economic ideal. Admitting that doesn't recommend then that we give in to our worst impulses and just sort of accept failure. It underscores the value, as you highlight, for the role of a teacher or a guide that encourages us to do better. Acknowledging that we will never attain perfection doesn't suggest that we abandon it. It just underscores the importance of that pursuit and figuring out ways to better come close to the ideal that we all aspire to. Yeah. And you've been an advocate of, hey, we can we can actually through education, both at, say, university level and in the employment context, we can actually improve people's judgment. We can improve their their decision making, improve their estimation. And, I, and I'm going to want you to talk about the judgment project that you, you did with Phil Tetlock and Barbara Mellers. And, and I want to talk about that in a second. But it seems to me that like if you want people to learn to be questioners, if you want people to learn to be uh, uh, feedback generators and feedback recipients in the ideal world and an ideal organization that might be a way of advancing. But in a lot of organizations that that's kind of like career suicide. I feel like if, you know, I, I tell my students, if it ain't broke, fix it anyway and question the status quo, which is the motto at Berkeley Haas. I feel like sometimes if we teach people to question the status quo, we're, we're sending them on a suicide mission for a lot of organizations because that's not what a lot of employers want. I mean, I even had a senior administrator say that that's a code word for being a jerk. <laughs> Does being someone who is this questioner and this person making good decisions and well calibrated, do they need to have a habitat that is compatible with that 
way of doing things? In other words, can being overconfident and, and being someone resistant to feedback, can that actually be an advantage in certain environments? And could that explain its prevalence? It's a good question and one that I have confronted in the context of another one of Haas's defining principles, and that is confidence without attitude. We want our graduates to be confident in their abilities, but not come off as arrogant jerks. That defining principle sort of sits next to the concern that in graduating dolphins to swim happily and peacefully in the corporate oceans. Which a lot of sharks. <laughs> uh-huh. That if they're yeah. competing with rivals from other schools mm-hmm. that are better at generating sharks, yeah. that they're going to get eaten. And there certainly are some workplaces that reward aggressive shark-like behavior to their detriment. And here it's easy to think of places like Enron, mm-hmm. whose culture of rewarding star performers disproportionately, promoting the conquering hero, even when that meant neglecting the team that had made their success possible, that sort of culture has often proved itself destructive. In highlighting the value of the cooperative, supportive, honest, and self-critical culture that Haas is better at promoting, It's easy for me to identify workplaces and organizations I mentioned already, Amazon and Netflix, that try to balance courage with caution and make wise decisions, acknowledging the reality that nobody achieves success on their own and that what you want is a a workplace culture that maximizes the performance of everybody there. You can argue that what we're doing is actually good for our students and for the organizations that they're going into, which is not to say that they'll always be loved and appreciated for it. Yeah. I mean, I think if we believe that most organizations are trending in that direction, then then we're preparing them for where they're ultimately going to work. And if we believe that the other organizations are going to essentially go bankrupt, which I, I mean, I do believe that organizations that don't promote a culture of continuous feedback will sooner or later die on the vine. But you and I both know that uh, just because markets are competitive doesn't mean they're perfectly efficient. And plenty of organizations persist and succeed despite having dysfunctional cultures. Yeah, disequilibrium can last a long time, Uh (laughs) I've discovered. The markets can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. Yes, or alive. So, Mm -hmm. but, you know, as someone who used to teach evolutionary biology back in the day, I'm always trying to find just so stories that can explain the things, why they persist. And, you know, if we think about overconfidence, my experience, like in the financial world, that the customer facing people, and if you're trying to climb the corporate ladder, you are customer facing where your manager is your customer. Customer facing folks tend to be rewarded for exhibiting overconfident tendencies. And so I'm wondering, you could come up with a clever signaling model that would say that this is signaling some underlying characteristic and in the same way that getting a degree does. And could that be a story or is this just the alternative is that, again, it's just silly irrationality. And and you mentioned a couple of my favorite examples where if you wear platform shoes, even if you tell people you're wearing platform shoes, people still think you're taller, right? And if you give someone a higher grade, even if you tell everybody that the grade is inflated, people still think you're smarter. What's the evolutionary story behind the success of 
customer facing overconfident folks. So salespeople, doctors, lawyers, you know, what could possibly be the evolutionary story here? Okay, good question. There are evolutionary models that ask questions like the one you've just posed and that identify a potentially evolutionary successful strategy for overconfidence. There was one not too long ago that got published in the journal Nature by Johnson and Fowler that Mm -hmm. noted that in contests between conspecifics for access to limited resources such as mates or food, Mm -hmm. when two individuals meet, if there's a possibility they'll fight, there will be one winner and one loser and the fight Mm -hmm. will be costly. They would prefer to avoid that fight if they can identify who would win it then the loser would just concede and not suffer the injuries. So like an agonistic display, right? Exactly. Yep. And in that agonistic display, there's some incentive to exaggerate your strength if it means you can scare off stronger rivals some percent of the time. And so you can build a model that in some circumstances, depending on some of its assumptions, can allow an evolutionarily stable strategy of overconfidence in which you exaggerate your strength in those Mm -hmm. sorts of encounters, the public-facing role you identify. That's a competitive situation. What about like in an agency relationship? Because that's that's where I I think we see a lot of it. You know, if we we talk about leadership, if Winston Churchill got up there and said, you know, there's there's a 40% chance that we'll be able to beat back the Nazis, right? I mean, you know, like no one's gonna no one's gonna die on a beach for that, right? I mean I'm not so sure. So you can be Winston Churchill, and Winston Churchill did say this. He said, our success is not guaranteed. We have months of miserable struggle ahead of us. We will suffer. Our young men will die on the battlefield. The cost will be colossal. But my fellow citizens, it is worth the fight because giving in is unconscionable. We cannot accept defeat by this fascist imperialist foe, we must resist with every fiber of our being. So you can call people to undertake a challenging task whose success is not guaranteed. And that is a rhetorical and leadership challenge, of course, in a circumstance like that, that calls for Herculean effort in the face of an enormous challenge. But there's a question implicit in what you said about the degree to which you need to fool yourself or others about the prospects of success. Again, I think there's the risk that if you actually succeed in fooling your company or your country, that success is guaranteed. If you lead them to think, we got this one in the bag for sure, those Nazis, they're toast. Like you may fail to exhibit the effort that is required to succeed that honestly conveying the challenges ahead and the sort of effort and commitment that is called for may facilitate the success that you seek. And that raises a question that Bill Von Hippel and Robert Trivers explore in their research, building on this evolutionary model that I described, where they pose the question of whether it is better to fool yourself. If fooling yourself helps you fool others, then maybe. But I think the evidence for that is not great, that fooling yourself can actually lull yourself into excessive comfort, right? You could become the hare in the race between the tortoise and the hare, where you wind up losing because you're too sure of yourself. And in fact, 
wise individual decision-making and often wise group decision-making is facilitated by honest confrontation of the challenges you face in your prospects for success. So in your book, you distinguish between overestimation, overplacement, overprecision. I think most people don't even realize that these different ways of being overconfident. And I think the biggest impact that you've had on me in all my years of teaching is that I simply refuse to accept a point estimate from anyone about anything. Right? And, and if Good someone man. says, hey, you know, I'll, I'll meet you at the restaurant at eight o'clock, I'm like, what's the 90% confidence interval on that, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> and they look at me like I'm insane, but I think this is something which is super, super helpful. And so you've come up with a couple ways of helping people to come up with better forecasts and, and better estimates. And you've worked with, with companies to help put this in place. And I think you highlighted how even organizations like the IMF, you know, when they come up with growth estimates, they don't do confidence intervals. Like what is going on? How do you get people to use some of these techniques? And maybe you can talk a little bit about the judgment project with your colleagues. Yeah. The good judgment project was an effort I undertook with a large team of colleagues and collaborators. But you mentioned Phil Tetlock and Barb Mellers, who were with me, principal investigators on the project. And the story of that project is told quite entertainingly in Phil Tetlock's book with Dan Gardner, Super Forecasting. We accepted a challenge from IARPA, the Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Activity, to take part in a forecasting tournament where they fed us questions of interest to the U.S. intelligence community, questions about geopolitical events, such as whether Greece would default on its sovereign debt or whether there would be a deadly conflict in the South China Sea or any number of related questions on which the U.S. intelligence community and the diplomatic community and the State Department were interested in accurate, honest forecasts. We put these questions to the forecasters who are on our team. And if I can brag for a moment, our team did better than the other four teams in the tournament with whom we were competing. And the story of our success is mostly a story about the wisdom of the crowd on which we relied. We were fortunate to recruit a number of hardworking, dedicated, thoughtful, and self-critical individuals These weren't experts in their fields, but they were educated readers of the New York Times, people who were well-informed of the issues of the day and willing to do hard work. And what's striking about their efforts is the degree to which they were willing to be self-critical and think probabilistically about the events in question. So often, as you note, we look to others to provide certain predictions. When are you going to show up? I'll be there at 8 p.m. Who's going to win? The Bulls are going to win the game. Who's going to win the election? Biden's going to win the election. Well, the truth is, it is fantastically uncertain, fantastically rare for us to know the future with certainty that in uh, forecasts of election outcomes and in forecasts of the weather, the best we can do is a probability. And being willing to think probabilistically about the future and admit the uncertainty that we've got. Yeah, Biden had a pretty good chance of winning the election, but it wasn't certain. Hillary Clinton also had a pretty good chance of winning the election, and that one came out with a surprising outcome. Confessing our uncertainty about the future helps get us out of this trap of pretending to be confident where it's not merited. 
And a lot of unsophisticated observers of political forecasts took sophisticated forecasters like Nate Silver to task for having given Hillary Clinton the 31, pardon me, a 71% chance ahead of the 2016 election. And Silver's sensible rejoinder was, I didn't say 100%. I said 71%. Mm-hmm. 29% of the time, something with 29% chance is going to happen. And Trump, I gave Trump 29% of the chance, 29% chance. Sometimes that'll happen. So, and this kind of raises the issue of, I think, diversity and also of kind of generalism versus specialization. And you've talked about how collective decision-making, well, individual decision-making benefits from having exposure to alternative viewpoints. And collective decision-making is optimized when you have these diverse viewpoints. Now, I think diversity is, is a buzzword that we all talk about. I think sometimes people misunderstand what what, we, what is meant by this, right? Which is really bringing different things to the table that, that are relevant for the decision. And it also, I think your discovery was that sometimes good generalists can collectively do better than uh, a group of exclusively specialists. And the purpose of an MBA is really, and I'm a big fan of the degree, even though it's under a lot of criticism, I'm a big fan of the idea that we're creating PhDs in common sense, right? The goal is to create like the best generalists out there who know how to, to harness expertise. Just like you don't need to memorize the map of London now as a ta- cab driver, because you got Google Maps, we've got statisticians, we've got epidemiologists, we've got all these other folks, we can we can lean on them. But you have to, because as a generalist, you can go and look for different types of specialists and, and staple their viewpoints together. So I wonder if you could talk about that. And then also the idea of diversity and whether this notion is under threat a little bit. I've been very frustrated by the coronavirus discussion because I, I feel like the science has the idea of different perspectives and viewpoints, all of which are within this scientific mainstream get filtered out because of politics and so forth. How can we maintain this rich notion of diversity to promote discovery? Does it require an optimal mix of generalists and specialists? It's a great question. So there is quite a bit of work in JDM and in psychology on the wisdom of the crowd. And the very idea is built into way that to the way that markets operate. So one of the reasons why the stock market is is as efficient as it is, is that those sorts of markets are efficient aggregators of disparate information held by all sorts of market participants. And that diversity is absolutely essential to the market's efficiency and its successful operation. In too many organizational settings, you wind up, thanks to the hierarchical structure of an organization, deferring to the hippo, the highest paid person in the organization. And as soon as the boss articulates an opinion, everybody genuflects to that position and you lose the diversity that makes the crowd wise. What are the alternatives? There there are some great alternatives, including trying to extract information from the crowd before the boss weighs in with his or her opinion. So one simple way to do that is before a meeting where you have to come to some important decision, you force everybody to vote, to pre-commit, or to identify their preferred list of candidates or outcome options or whatever it is that you're talking about. And only once you've elicited the crowd's wisdom, then you open up the discussion. Maybe you, sh- you begin the meeting by saying, here are the options that came out in order. The top ranked option was this one. Let's talk about that one. 
So it's like the Alfred Sloan idea that, you know, you need to force yeah. disagreement. Yeah, I love that story where his board was in unanimous agreement on something. And he said, gentlemen, let's adjourn for a while and inform ourselves of what this decision is really about. As in, we need some diverse perspectives here. It's scaring me if everybody agrees. It suggests we haven't really thought about this enough. Uh, yeah, I tell my students, if, if all your friends agree with you, you need new friends. And if all your friends <laughs> like you, you need new friends. You know, you need a couple that don't like you and don't agree with you. Yeah, our rivals, our enemies, and our critics are providing gifts of inestimable value. What do they know that leads to that differing perspective? And it's not necessarily the case that you should always wind up agreeing. Annie Duke, in her book, Thinking in Bets, identifies a wonderful way to capitalize on disagreement, where you got someone who's arguing against you. Instead of like trying to persuade them of your perspective, don't fight about your disagreement. Bet on it. So inviting them want to bet allows you to make a profitable opportunity of this information discrepancy. And if they're being irrational, then you stand to make money on the disagreement that you're talking about. But you want to make sure in that process that there's useful information discovery that you learn from them what it is that they're paying attention to. You bet against them only if you remain pretty sure that you have information that they're not taking into account. And of course, that's possible. Not everyone's perfectly rational. Well, so you mentioned the devil's advocate, right, in the Vatican. And, you know, can you simulate this? In law school, we would just tell people, okay, this is the argument you're going to make. You don't have a choice in the matter. We don't ask you what you think. We say, this is what you... And I think in other disciplines, that's a little less common. Certainly in business school, I have a difficult time getting getting people to take certain sides of certain arguments because people are very concerned about how they're going to appear. And so even when they do it, they, they preface it by saying, now, nah, look, I don't, I don't really believe this. Sorry, uh -huh. You've already lost. You've already lost. Like that's not, uh -huh. I didn't ask you to do that. Right. So, so the idea of role playing and perspective taking seems to be a very important skill to help get closer to a more accurate view of the world. Yeah, I agree. It can be a political challenge. There are companies that try to appoint people to the role of devil's advocate to speak against some initiative. And you usually want the person who is in that position to be politically secure, a trusted yeah. ally or conciliary to the boss, if not the boss, him or herself being the one to articulate the con position. It's not a recipe for making everybody get along better or feel good because the devil's advocate position, if fulfilled, really means raising doubts and question the, questioning the wisdom of the group's approach, highlighting the possibility of failure. So that can bring up dissent and make people doubt whether success is assured, but it is enormously helpful for making better decisions. It takes a courageous leader to be able to yeah. make full use of that valuable information. And there are plenty of leaders with fragile egos. We've seen one in the White House for the last four years mm -hmm. who resist the critical input of devil's advocates. I guess there's, there's one last thing that I found fascinating in the book, which was you described this story of Jeff Rubin, who was an expert in escalation of commitment and as an expert wound up actually dying of a failure to recognize the behavior that he uh, specialized in. Is this an example of an expert failing to recognize the phenomenon that they study? Yeah, Jeff Rubin's story is such a painful one. So he studied escalation of commitment and was also an avid mountain climber. 
he set himself the goal of climbing all the, the top 100 peaks in the Northeast US. And he'd come so close to achieving his goal. He'd climbed the top 99 and was on the last, Mount Katahdin. He set out on a day where the weather wasn't ideal. And his fellow climber at one point said, this is unsafe, we should turn back. And Ruben said, I'm going for it. This represents the achievement of my goal. If you're not comfortable, you should head back by yourself. His partner did, and Ruben persisted. In doing so, he displayed courage and grit, and he died on that mountain. Mm -hmm. Climbers are vulnerable to what they call uh, summit fever, where the commitment to making the summit overwhelms all your better judgment. And that story highlights a way out of the predicament. If you anticipate the possibility you could get summit fever, that you could wind up acting against your own self-interest, getting carried away with the lure of success of your venture or your project, set yourself some limit, some stopping point that will force you to confront the risks ahead and the wisdom of de-escalating your commitment and turning around before you die, before you lose it all in the venture. Don, look, there's so much we could talk about. We could go on for days, I think, but we got to wrap it up. So thanks so much for coming in uh, and talking today. We really appreciate it. Every time I talk to you, there's always, I think, some new light bulb that go off in my head. And I think that, you know, your work is ideal for this unsiloed format. Thanks, Greg. This is really fun. It's everybody out there. Check out this book, Perfectly Confident. Awesome book. 100% confident you're going to like it. <laughs> thanks, you can do better again, with that Doug. judgment, Craig. Good Bayesians are never 100% sure of anything. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.